All right. Hey, we, um, I'm going to start out with just a question, right? Everybody there? Oh, good, 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 good. Why did Jesus come to earth? To save us. That's good. What else? Testify to the truth. What else? Man, you guys are a lot better than first service. I, I just like you guys so much. Don't tell those guys though, okay? All right. I was like, hello. All right, what else? He came to seek and to save the lost, right? He came not to be served, but to serve, right? Yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that... Almost, all right. That's good, uh, kind of. John three sixteen. all right. Whew. I know, kind of crazy the way that works, doesn't it? So here's the next question, though. How did Jesus come? How did he come? He came as a baby, right? But we would say he came preaching, he came teaching, he came healing, right? Yes. Well, there's another way that's pretty interesting. And uh, I found it studying through the book of Luke. I think Luke's always a fascinating writer. Probably, uh, probably my favorite gospel is the gospel of Luke. And part of the reason I like Luke is because Luke, he went on a journey to really investigate this Jesus guy and to really try to understand what he was all about and what he was doing and whether he was really authentic. And he did all this study and this research for some guy named Theophilus, right? And so he gives us some really interesting data, some facts, some some information in his gospel that otherwise we wouldn't have. And so in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, it says this, The Son of Man has come, not teaching, not preaching, not healing. The Son of Man has come, eating, and drinking. Isn't this great? And so when people say, why do churches always have to do potlucks? Well, because that's what Jesus would do. I mean, clearly, this is what Jesus would do, right? I mean, he came eating, he came drinking. And, and so it goes on. And he, as a matter of fact, he did so much of it that he was accused of eating and drinking too much. Look at this. And they would say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. When you read the Gospel of Luke, you often will see that Jesus was coming from some party, some gathering, some, some event. He was at some event, or he was going to some event where there would be food and celebration and a party of sorts. So it's really interesting to me that as we talk about how do we love like Jesus, week one we talked about we love like Jesus and we forgive because Jesus forgave, right? Last week, we talked about washing feet, that we would serve because Jesus served. He washed the feet of his disciples. And so this week, we're going to talk about how Jesus breaks bread, all right? And we're going to call it breaks bread because, well, that's what the Bible calls it. But here's the caveat. If you're new to church, right, there's a code word, and there are lots of code words in the church, by the way. How many of you have ever experienced this? Like you start hanging out with Christians, and they talk weird. It's like a foreign language, and you need a dictionary just to decipher a Christian talk. All right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. One of those is if somebody at Mountain View comes up to you and says, hey, let's break bread, all right? Wayne Felton's favorite word, all right? Let's break bread. If Wayne Felton comes to you and says, let's break bread, he's not really talking about, hey, let's go break a piece of bread. He says, we should have lunch together. All right? I know it's a little weird when he says, hey, let's break bread together. Okay? You're thinking, what is that? 
It really means let's fellowship. Let's have a meal together. Let's have a celebration. Let's have a party. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing. And I think that Jesus modeled this for us in so many different ways. Even last week when we were talking about the washing of feet, you remember this? Where was he at? He was in the upper room. He was getting ready to have a Passover meal, a celebration, a feast of sorts. And what did he do? He, he created this space for intimacy and for fellowship and, and for them to experience one another's presence. Even before Jesus leaves the earth, dies on the cross, right, and is buried, he gathers his disciples to have this heartfelt moment where he pours his heart out to them to give them kind of their final instructions, their last instructions, so that they won't forget everything that's going on. And so I think what Jesus was doing is Jesus wanted us to look at his life, and he wants us to live our lives, our Christian lives, through the lens of community, through the lens of community. And I think it's very purposeful because Luke also wrote the, God, uh, the, sorry, the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we see the start of the church. And in Acts chapter 2, we get the summary of what the church was. And so if you have your Bibles, look at Acts chapter 2. And we'll see what the early church did, the things that they did. It says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to... What's the next phrase? The fellowship, right? To the breaking of bread and the prayers. And Luke writes, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and with generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And for the Christians in the room, this is my question. Does our lives look like that? Do our lives look like that? The community, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, the prayers, the, the having things in common, doing life together, attending church, the temple together. Do our lives look like what the early church looked like? And, and let me just say this. I'm not here. I'm not, I do not pull out the stick and beat us, all right? That's not what I'm doing. But I want us to think about some things today. And if we're going to love like Jesus, then we're going to love like Jesus in community. Community is such an important part of loving like Jesus did. And so how do we look? How does this work? How, how does our life measure up to what the early church, the lens of community, how does that work? And, and if you read about our society and our culture and how our culture has changed through the years, and by the way, it has, okay? It has. Hey, so let me just ask this question. How many of you can remember living in a home without air conditioning? And some of you may not have air conditioning now, but in Oklahoma, man, that just wasn't the case, okay? Um, how many of you remember living in a home without air conditioning? Yeah. So as a matter of fact, a lot of people who study society and, and all of these things, they'll tell you that it was HVAC that drastically changed community. Because when you didn't have an air conditioner... 
you typically didn't spend time in the house. You spent time outside. outside. And if you have your home, where did you spend time? On the front porch. Right? But the experts say as soon as we built air conditioners and created air conditioners, HVAC units in our home, guess what happened? We went into the house and we closed the windows and we closed the doors and we put blinds over our windows because blinds kept the house. You know this. You've read the same material that I have. And culture, community, fellowship started to change. And so we didn't stop with the air conditioner. There was a day that we had detached garages. And so when you pulled up into the driveway after coming home from work, you'd get out of the car and you would have to open the garage door. And then you'd get back in your car and you would pull your car into the garage. And then you'd get out of your car and you'd close the garage and then you'd walk into the house and your neighbor Fred could say, hey, what's going on? How was your day? And you would stop and you would talk to Fred and you would say, well, how's it going, Fred? And what's going on in your life? And how was your work? And, and you could have this conversation, right, that would happen. But then we built attached garages to our house. Where we still pulled up, we had to get out, we had to open, and Fred still had a chance to say, hey, how's it going today? So we took care of that problem. <laughs> oh, yeah. We created the garage door opener. So you could actually pull in to the driveway, push a button, let the door open, pull the car in, and close the garage door long before Fred had a chance to capture your ear. You could close the garage, get out of the car, walk straight into the house. Good to go. So to make matters worse, we stopped building front porches and we built back porches and we put fences and gates around our back porch to keep people... You're catching on what's happened in culture, what's happened in society through the years. And then, and then we had the thing that was called the phone. And the phone would ring, and the phone would ring, you would answer it. And then sometime in the 80s, we created this cool thing called caller ID. I remember how my grandparents' lives changed. This plaque-type box thing would hang up on the wall right above the phone. Now, you still had to get up from the couch to pick up the corded phone, but you could look at who's calling you. And suddenly, if it was somebody you didn't want to talk to, you could just let the phone. And so then we said, you know what we need? Answering machines. So they can answer the phone for us. And so then Fred, the neighbor, would call just to check in, and you could say, delete. I'm not calling him back. Oops, something's wrong with the answering machine. The technology these days, can you imagine this? I don't know what happened to your message. The reason you're laughing is because some of you have done this. <laughs> so 
Sociologists say, if you have to have a house with a garage door and a gate and everything that locks and closes, why did you buy a house in that neighborhood? <laughs> Great question. So now we don't even have caller ID. You know, iPhone came out with this thing that you could just silence the ringer. Somebody's calling, you don't want to talk to them? You don't even have to push decline, because decline goes straight to the voicemail, so you just silence it, so they just think you're busy. Anybody done that before? Come on. Yes. Yes. So to make matters worse, we used to run into Fred at the grocery store. But now we have online grocery shopping to where we can still pull up in our car with the windows up. The only person we have to talk to is a little button at Fred Meyer that says, hello, my name is, and they bring your groceries to and they load them in your car for you. And the only interaction you have is with the clerk that helped you get your groceries. No chance in running into Fred then. Right? And the only time your front door gets used is when the Amazon guy drops off a package. Like we can see how society's changed, can't you? How community has changed, how, how everything about community has changed. And I often wonder, I wonder if Luke was investigating the church today. What would Luke write? And it would probably be something like this. The Christians were devoted to themselves and occasionally got to church when they had time. And no one was filled with awe because there were no signs and wonders performed by the believers. Very few of the believers were together and they had almost nothing in common because they had no real time with each other. If they sold something, they used the money to buy something better or bigger for themselves. They ate on the run. They kept to themselves. They were too rushed to enjoy one another or give praise to God. They claimed to love God, but they didn't really love each other, and they felt very empty and very alone. As a result, most people disliked them, and very few people were ever saved. Now, isn't that harsh? I know that's harsh. It's harsh. But our culture has changed so much that I have to stand up here, and I have to look at the life of Jesus, and I have to say, if we're going to love like Jesus... We have to love community. We have to love fellowship. We have to love gathering. We have to love to eat and drink. That's the weirdest verse ever. But that's what we get to do. So I want to challenge us today. And part of what I want to challenge us about is we, I've even stood up here and I said the most important thing about what we do here is that you have a personal relationship with Jesus. Right? E even that what does it communicate? It communicates personal. It communicates that it's mine, that nobody else is involved. We've become so independent that we've missed the fact that what Jesus tried to create with the church was a shared relationship. We have a relationship with Jesus that is shared among other people with Jesus, and we get to share it together. And so it's not just about personal. As a matter of fact, I've said this a lot. I don't believe that Jesus ever intended us to do this Christian life, the Christian journey, by ourselves. I believe that he intended for us to do it in community with one another and with each other. Is it always pretty? Absolutely not. Look at you. Look at me. It's not always easy or good. 
And so if we're going to share the love of Jesus, if we're going to love like Jesus loves, then we have to share the love of Jesus with other believers at church. At church. And I often say, maybe this isn't what Jesus intended to create, but guess what? I think he would still say, this is good. When I was giving everybody a hard time who wasn't in the room yet because you were still out in the foyer when I started our service, I think Jesus would say that was good. The chatting going on with each other and the communication that's happening and the, the fellowship that was taking place. I think he thinks, yes, that's exactly what, what he wanted. And so we, we have to, if we're going to share the love of Jesus, if we're going to love like Jesus, then we have to share the love of Jesus with believers at church. I love what Hebrews chapter 10 says, verse 24, it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another and to love and to good works. How do we stir one another up? How, how do we teach each other to love and to do good works if we never experience each other? How do we do that? The whole purpose of us gathering, the whole purpose of us meeting isn't so that we do this church thing. It's so that we stir one another up, so that we, our hearts get stirred a little bit to love Jesus and to love each other and to love the world and to do good things, to accomplish good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews wrote this saying, hey, at some point Jesus is going to return, and I think community, I think fellowship, I think breaking bread is going to get harder because the world's going to convince you you are the only thing, only person that truly matters. We live in a society that we believe that I'm it, that I'm the only one that needs to care, but it's all about... And in the end days, guess what? We're going to be more consumed and more self-consumed and more, more into ourselves than anything else. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, it's going to get harder. And so you have to gather, stir one another up towards love and towards good works. And don't neglect meeting together, but encourage each other. I am convinced in all my heart that our presence, your presence and my presence, it matters. Why? Because presence is powerful. Presence is powerful. I remember moving here in 2003, and shortly after I was here, one of the youth leaders at the time invited a bunch of guys over to his house to watch a movie. It's supposed to be the greatest movie on the face of the planet, right? And so I thought, wow, I've never heard of this movie before. So I went to the Blockbuster, which is where Chipotle is now on Burnside, and I actually got out of my car and walked into a video store all right, and yes, I rented the Monty Python, the Holy Grail on VHS. How many of you have seen this movie? How many of you have not seen this movie? You're okay. All right, True, truly, you didn't lose much. So this is what happens. I'm supposed to be going to this house with these bunch of guys and, and the youth worship team at the time, and we're going to watch the Holy Grail, all right, Monty Ponte, the Holy Grail, and uh, I had no idea what they were talking about, but one guy quoted it all the time, so I thought, I don't want to be dumb. I'm going to go rent this myself. I'm going to watch it, and I watched it for two hours, and I swear to you, I will never get those two hours back. <laughs> and then, 
I show up over at Kevin Dilla's house. We walk in. There's about 12 guys there. We put in the movie. We watch the movie. It was the most hilarious movie I think I've ever seen in my entire life. I laughed so hard that my ribs hurt for two days. It was still dumb. But guess what? When you are with other people watching a dumb movie, it got dumber and the funnier it got. There is power in presence. Your presence and my presence, it matters. And it's really interesting because here I am talking about community. And if you're here this morning, whoo, mission accomplished, right? Now, if you're in every other weeker, <laughs> you're thinking, I'm glad I'm here this week and not last week. Community is so important because your presence and because it's powerful and it, and it matters. And so what do we do with that? Have you, ever, have you ever gone with your family into the house and one kid goes to one room and another kid goes to another room and mom goes to one room and dad goes to the other place and you all are doing kind of your own thing all apart? But then when you actually come together and you do something together, doesn't, doesn't it have an impact? Doesn't the presence matter? Doesn't, doesn't being there together have power in and of itself? And I think that that's what Jesus was talking about. And I think what's happened over the time, though, we have reduced fellowship with God and worship to God to, to something that can be so individual and so personal that we neglect this part of it. I mean, seriously, and I know this to be true, okay? You can get great worship music probably better than what we provided today. Listen, listen, no, hear, hear what I'm saying, hear what I'm saying, hear what I'm saying, hear what I'm saying. You can get great worship music anywhere at a finger's push. You can get great preaching. And I'm, and I'm serious when I say this, all right? I don't listen to my sermons when I'm looking for great preaching. I listen to other people's sermons when I'm looking for great preaching, all right? And I'm not dogging on myself. I'm just telling you, just flat out, we have great preaching that is available by pressing a button. But what you can't get is community. And what you can't get is fellowship. And what you can't get is the journey of doing the Christian life with other people. What you can't get that was so vitally important to Jesus that Luke says he came eating and drinking. In other words, what Luke is saying is one of the pivotal parts of Jesus' ministry was being with other people. It was fellowship. It was the breaking of bread. It was the gathering. It was the celebration. You've got to have it if we're going to love like Jesus. It's a critical part of the life of a Christian. There's a lot of research by church experts. And what they're telling us is actually a really scary statistic. That the average Christian American, so if you're an American who considers yourself a Christian, a Jesus follower, a disciple of Jesus, attends church once every four weeks. Why? Why is that happening? Well, again, you can get great preaching anywhere. You can get great, great, great worship music anywhere. You can get anywhere, Right? So literally, it might take you one hour and 40 minutes total on a Sunday to be a part of every, from parking lot to parking lot, right? From car to car. 
one hour and 40 minutes a week to gather together for worship and for celebration and for, for what we do that we call church. Now, what's interesting is some people, when they ask why, and the research is all over the place, right? Everybody's doing research on this, trying to make sense of what is the future church going to look like? Why are we doing this? It's going to change. But how is it going to change? What is it going to look like? And how do you continue to have community, which is so critical and so important for the Christian life? How do you do it? So everybody's writing about this. Everybody's talking about it. And and what's so interesting to me is that if you look at your iPhone, we probably spent as much time on social media yesterday that we will in church today. And again, I'm not trying to pick on us. I'm just, I'm trying to maintain something that's so critical and so important. And I just believe that we can do better if we want to. And so part of loving like Jesus and part of showing the love of Jesus is gathering together with other believers at church. It just is. And a second part of that is this, that we, if we're going to share the love of Jesus, we want to share it with other believers, but we also want to share it with a committed community of people, a committed community of people. Here's the deal. I meet with a group of pastors on a regular basis. We talk about groups all the time at Mountain View and how we want you to be a part of a group and how important a group is. And part of the reason we talk about that is because life change can happen in rows, but really life change happens in a small group of people. You can start doing life with a small group of people. They're going to ask you questions. I mean, that's why we avoid groups, honestly, because we don't want them to ask us those questions. We don't want to sometimes change the things that we know that we need to change, that if I expose other people, they're going to tell me I need to change. And so we avoid that. But I'm in this group of pastors from, from the Portland area. And uh, we, we talk about a lot of stuff. There's some accountability that's in place. We talk about things that are going on in our church, right? Because I want to practice exactly what I'm preaching and being in a group of people. And, and, I, and I just got to tell you, even with a bunch of pastors from East County and from, well, the Portland area, gathering together, we're friends. Some of us are really close friends. And yet doing this gathering with each other, on a regular basis where we talk about the deep, hard questions about life and holding one another accountable and praying and sometimes fasting and some of the other things we do, I got to tell you, it's not fun sometimes. As a matter of fact, there's one pastor. He actually gets on my nerves. (laughs) And occasionally I have to check my heart, all right? Because I think, who let him be a pastor? Right? And he probably thinks about me. Who let him be a pastor? But this is what I know. My life is better when I'm a part of a committed group of people than it is when I'm not. Because a couple of weeks ago, I'm sharing with this group of people something that I felt like God was doing in my life. And uh, they kind of held me accountable. And they said, well, it sounds like you're kind of, this was the analogy that was given to me. It sounds like you're kind of like a sailboat and you've got this great idea and your job is to put up the sails and see if the Holy Spirit's going to blow the wind, right? But it sounds like you've determined long before you even put up the sails that you're going to strap the sails down and just not even try. Oh, I had to drive from Gladstone back home, which is a long drive after you've just been admonished like that. But he was right. He was absolutely right. And there's been some things in my heart that have changed the last couple of weeks because of that conversation. 
that I wouldn't have experienced if I wasn't a part of a committed community of people, right? Is it always pretty? Uh-uh. Is it somewhat messy? Absolutely. Will you get your feelings hurt? Pretty sure of it. Will somebody get on your nerves? Yes. Yes, we are humans. It's what happens. But I challenge you, if you're not in a group with people, even if they're not people that you would agree on every aspect of life with, get in a group because life is better with a committed community of people than it is by yourself. To do the Christian life alone is to prepare yourself for disaster. That way, maybe we can start looking like the early church. Let me read this again. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And one of my fears is that maybe we're missing a part of this. One of my fears is that we've become so isolated and so individual and we've made our relationship with Jesus so personal that we're missing the fact that when we go out of this place, we are supposed to be different than the rest of the world. That the one thing we share together is the mark of the Holy Spirit and we get to leave and we get to walk out and we get to go into the world and we get to be different than the rest of the world. When we go to restaurants and we eat, there should be a mark of difference in us. When we're driving down the road, there should be something different about us. When we go into our workplaces and we submit to our employer, there should be something different about us. For those of us who are following Jesus and committed to following Jesus, is it easy? No. But there should be something different about us. So that the world would say, I don't know what community you're in, but I think I like that. My fear is that the rest of the world is looking and maybe saying, they got the same stuff that I have. Why do I need that? Why do I want to be a part of that? What do you stand for anyway? I'm so confused. Who are you serving anyway? I, I don't understand. And I think it should be so different. And when we walk into our workplaces, when we walk into our kids' schools, when we walk into restaurants, when we get our gas pumped at the gas station, I mean, every aspect of life, there should be something remarkably different about those who call Jesus their Lord and Savior from the rest of the world. And so one of the things that I want to do today is this. I want to do communion different because communion is an individual time in our service. We say it every Sunday. It's a personal time in our service when you can take the bread and you can take the cup and guess what? You can have a personal reflection about all that Jesus has done for your life. Today, I want us to have that personal time because I think it's important, but I also want us to have a shared time. 
And so when the ushers pass out the trays today, what I want you to do is I want you to take the little piece of bread. I want you to hold it. And when we take the cup today, I want you to take the cup and, and I want you to hold it. And while you're holding it, while we're waiting everybody to get one, everybody to be served, you can pray, you can contemplate, you can consider all that Jesus has accomplished in your life and what he accomplished on the cross and the freedom from sins. I mean, you really truly think about that, but then we will commune in a shared experience together. Together. Because this was the purpose. This was the purpose. I think Jesus' idea for the church. That together we would have the shared. So I want to read Luke. Listen to this. And when the hour came, Jesus, he reclined at the table. And the apostles reclined with him. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And Jesus, he took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Eat this, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, Jesus took the cup, and after they had eaten, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so, ushers, would you please come? And church, would you please take a piece of bread and hold it? Would you take a cup of juice and hold it? And will you thank Jesus for the cross and what he accomplished on it for you?